right now. All right, here we go. Hey! Last year, it went tire Hey guys, this is Marco Mendoza from Dead Daisy. This is Tate Fletcher. Hi, this is Ivan Davies from My Pal. This is John Karate. That's Rocktober on the Mojo Radio Show. Let's hear it. I knew all the dance moves. It just makes me feel good. How long has this Rocktober thing been going on? Great idea. Sixty-five days later. Whoa, whoa, stop, stop it right there! We're ready to do it all again. Ready on the lights, on the action, on the camera. Welcome to Rocktober 2017 on the Mojo Radio Show. Thirty-one days that will go down in history. Stand by. It all starts. Hey everybody and welcome to week two of Rocktober on the Mojo Radio Show. Nice to have you on the Rocktober bus. We've painted it purple because it's rolling in a different lane for Rocktober. Welcome aboard. If you're new to the show, what do we do here? We just find interesting people that we think have got something to offer that we can steal, take from, plagiarize and apply to our own world to help us get our mojo working in or out of work, driving the big purple Rocktober bus. Uh, Robbo, welcome to the show. Hello, mate. How are you going? I've got some big news. Well, we get, do we get some more beer set in the studio? <laughs> no, but you know how we're, we're, we're going to be famous. You know how we were talking last week about Lofty Fulton going into like 110 countries around the world? Yes. I got a phone call from the big man last week saying, mate, I've got to put a new demo together. Uh, is I heard the Rocktober intro. Is there any chance I could use a bit of it on my demo? So, firstly, I need your approval. <laughs> really? As a, yeah. And secondly, we're going to go to like 110 countries around the world with Lofty's well, demo. Well, we should just fill it in for our customers. Lofty Fulton is one of the great voice talents of Australia with our own Andrew Peters. The two of them are legendary in the voice mm. talent industry. Mm. Lofty was very kind to do our Rocktober promos for us. But, uh, mate... Heck yeah, it's either a hell yeah or no, or I reckon it's a hell yeah. Oh, I think it's a big hell yeah. Maybe even a case of Dos uh, we'll, <laughs> oh, Let's not, yeah, let's sitting, not get too out of control. Yeah. There's not a lot left. <laughs> in fact, I went to the bar fridge in the studio yesterday, man. I think there's only two there. There might be one left. <laughs> right, yeah. 31 days of pure mojo. Rocktober. On the Mojo Radio Show. Mate, it's not often I see you in the studio with your autograph book, but um, today's one of those days. Yeah, to set it up for our listeners, Cal Newport wrote a book called Deep Work, and anybody who's been on board the bus, the big red bus we call the Mojo Radio Show, uh, you will know that Deep Work, the book he wrote, uh, bestseller around the world, is a book that I quite often reference when I'm speaking to to guests on the show just to understand where, where and how do they apply Deep Work the book itself, to Robbo's point, uh, is one of my favourite books of the last number of years. It's certainly in my top 10. Whenever I'm on the speaking circuit here in our country, I am highly recommending it as part of my reading list for people to get their mojo working. Just to, to think about this whole concept of deep work, it's very profound. It's very powerful. And those that take it on see wonderful results. I thought, well, being Rocktober, Rocktober is about great guests, great production, great fun and great rock. And I thought, well, if I could get Cal Newport on the show, that would make for a great Rocktober. I wrote to him. He agreed to be on the show. So, Cal Newport, welcome to Rocktober on the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Sure. Thanks for having me. Can I just say before we get started, I know we've never met, but I feel like I know you, the amount that Gary talks about your book on this show. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, I sort of apologize for that in advance. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. it's like talking to your next door neighbor. <laughs> yeah, fanboy. Fan 
Hashtag yeah, fanboy. That's right. that's right. Exactly. Cal, when somebody asks you what you do, how do you like to reply? Well, I usually say uh, that I'm a computer science professor who also writes about the impact of these technologies on our life. If we take it back to people who may not be familiar with your writing and your books, the book that we want to focus on today is the one that we talk often about on the program, as Rob mentioned, which is Deep Work. When, when we're talking about deep work, just define what the deep part means. Deep work is, well, it's my term for the activity when you are focusing without distraction on a cognitively demanding task. So if you want it to be deep, it has to be without any distraction, no glances at screens, no glances at inbox, and it has to be on something that's hard for your brain, something hard. So a lot of people would say, well, I work hard at work and I sit in front of my computer jamming stuff out. How do I, how do I actually know, according to your philosophies, how do I know or qualify the fact that I'm doing proper deep work? Well, for it to be deep, you have to be working on something for an extended period of time without interruption or distraction. That is, if you switch your context to look at something else, it doesn't count as deep work. So actually what most of people fill their day with is not actually deep work. It's what I call shallow work, which is fine. It's not bad, but it doesn't move the needle or create the new value at nearly the level that deep work can in most jobs. And it's fair to say you need both, right? So in a given day, even you would have to have times where you're just getting stuff done. Yeah, you need both. I often say shallow work is what keeps you from getting fired and deep work is what gets you promoted. Our problem today is that we do almost no deep work. That is the crisis, is that we are completely ignoring what is arguably the more important of the two types of work in a knowledge economy. Because being a believer in your work, I find that the issue, the issue that I think most people would have with this, Cal, is that it's the cognitively challenging part that you focus on without distraction but it's the ability to kind of drill into something and stay with it. Because it just seems we have this distracted world around us, which we get onto in a second. But it just seems the bit that is missing for a lot of people is the ability now to pick one thing and stick with it to go beyond the obvious, to really drill down, which is kind of, you know, probably using your imagination or probably creativity. Is that what you're kind of noticing that, it's the ability to be able to stick with one thing and actually for a long period of time drill into it to explore all the options? That's definitely a part of it. So when we think about deep work, it, it can mean a few things. One is diving deeply, like you say, on something that's very important to what you do for a living. Deep work also is the type of activity that helps you learn something new. It's what allows you to, to keep up with complicated or changing ideas and systems. So it's producing new things, it's learning new things, and it's doing that at a sort of high level of value production. If, if we can take that off-ramp for a second, I've heard you speak before, and if I take you right back to your younger days, you were a self-proclaimed not great learner, and you said that you weren't. You, you said you weren't a great student, but you effectively learnt how to learn better. If you think back to that time and take those learnings that you apply to your world today, what sort of stuff do you do? that helps you learn more effectively today that you took from back then? Yeah, that's an interesting connection. I mean, you're absolutely right. Back when I was a, a new student at the university level, I wasn't that great at being a student. And then I ran this period of experimentation where I worked on my study habits and over a period of about one semester became a straight A student. I actually even wrote a book about that at the time back when I was in school. And the, the big picture lesson I took away from that is that just because everyone is doing something a certain way doesn't mean it's fundamental. So as a college student, I was studying the same way that everyone else around me at university was doing, and it was time-consuming and stressful, and you're staying up late. I did my own independent experimentation. By the time I was done, I was approaching my schoolwork in a completely different way than most people I knew. But the result was I was getting 
much better grades and I was studying less. So that, that instilled in me this mindset that often just because everyone is doing something the same way, college students staying up all night or workers in the office checking email all day, doesn't necessarily mean that this is the fundamental or right way to do it. So what are you taking from that period? So tell me how you go about learning today. If you are in your given week, you've got a period you are setting aside for deep work and we're looking for, let's call it cognitive expansion or learning for you. How do you, what, what tools do you apply from back then where you learned to learn better? Right. Well, the biggest lesson I picked up from, from that old time of experimentation was the primacy of active recall over passive recall. So active recall is when you're actually trying to replicate and apply the thing you're learning, whereas passive recall is where you're just browsing or reviewing the information, maybe reading over a textbook or trying to read text. The huge neon sign lesson I learned when studying learning was active recall is orders of magnitude more effective at learning something than just sitting there and reading about it or reviewing it passively. But active recall is incredibly cognitively demanding when you're trying to have your mind apply a new skill for the first time and try to apply it for the first time. It is very demanding. So if you're comfortable with deep work, you're comfortable with active recall. If you're uncomfortable with it, you're going to run for the hills. This is really interesting. I'm, and this could be a long straw and I've just thought of this, but I'd like your view on it. I heard a quote recently that said, wisdom has been replaced by knowledge and knowledge has been replaced by information. His point was that basically we are just consuming content and we consume more and more content, but we're not actively doing anything with it for it to be able to become knowledge and we don't stick with it for long periods of time, in which case it never becomes wisdom. Is there a correlation between that sort of philosophy, Kel, and what you're talking about in terms of active recall? Yes. I mean, I think we could, in that terminology, say active recall, which is where you take information and actually try to put it into action, try to put it into action to produce something new. That is, we can call the formulation of wisdom. And it's a step that we're less and less comfortable making because it's a step that requires sustained, difficult attention. So focus has been a big part of your work, I guess, around the book Deep Work. And I heard you say a quote, which I loved, and I have credited you with this quote. You said, focus has become the new IQ. If And that, and that quote you said was, focus was the new IQ in the knowledge economy. If we've gone from the knowledge economy to the consumption economy, where does that leave us with IQ? Well, yeah, that is a good question. So when I said focus is the new IQ, what I was referring to is this idea that in the, the second half of the 20th century, you know, we thought IQ is what was key. How fast and how well can you process information? This was in the U.S. Robert Reich's symbolic analysts were going to be the the job to rule the future. And my argument is, as I look at how knowledge work is evolving, what's going to differentiate stars from non-stars more consistently is not what's your raw mental horsepower. It's instead going to be what's your capacity to focus, to put the horsepower you have to work on the information. So in other words, I feel most people's cognitive capacity is being uh, left on the sideline because you cannot harness it. You can't harness the sort of neuronal horsepower if you're not able to actually focus your mind intensely. So in a consumption economy, you should be worried. You should be worried if you are not regularly thinking very hard. If you are just a consumer you become what the technologist Jaron Lanier called just a gadget in this large money-making machine, and that's not where you want to be. So really focus, I think, is going to be the number one skill if you're going to stay above water as things go forward. See, I think that's uh, – I think you just – you hit the nail on the head with what I was trying to say before. You just did it more eloquently because you are smarter. But you said – it's the thinking very hard bit. And I reckon that's the bit people are struggling with. And I think this whole idea of deep work, for me, what the reason I found it so profound was just getting people to think harder and think very hard about a thing. But it seems to me that we give it some thought 
and then we're easily distracted by bright, shiny objects. Is that what you're observing? I am observing that. And what makes it even worse is that we're telling ourselves a story that all of the bright, shining objects are somehow fundamental to our current age, that this frequent, constant communication and information flying around and tweets and memes and Facebook updates, this is all somehow high tech and and, and of the future and it makes us avant-garde. But the reality is, that's just a business model. That's just in a business model. There's a, there's a small number of companies that are trying to extract your time and attention in the same way that 100 years ago, the big oil companies wanted to extract as much oil and gas as they could from the ground. The new fracking is not in the Canadian tar sands. It's in your head. And sticky smartphone apps are the, the new technology. And so we're telling ourselves that somehow this, this distracted lifestyle is fundamental but it actually is just a distraction. What the knowledge economy actually demands from us is deep thinking. And putting those two things together, I think, is a, a, a very worrisome paradox of our current age. Yeah, it's gold, Robert. I think we just struck gold. Deep gold. Deep, 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 deep gold. October <laughs> gold. No, as long as we're not fracking for gold. No, we're not fracking for gold. There's no fracking in this show. Hey, Cal, um, the quick glance. I heard you mention it recently in an interview, and I thought, you know what, that absolutely nails the issue of why people aren't thinking very hard. And they think it's innocent, and I reckon people don't even know they're doing this quick glance. And I sit watching people in a meeting, or I sit watching, I like to watch people, but you watch in a cafe or couples or families, this bloody quick glance is killing us, and it's an epidemic that I don't even know we know we have. What's your view on that? Yeah, the quick glance is one of the sort of fundamental tragedies of knowledge work right now. And I I think you're right that we don't realize its impact. People think they're single taskers because they don't literally have multiple windows open at the same time. People don't do anymore what they used to do in the early 2000s, where they're on the phone with the email inbox open while they're writing something. We all know that doesn't work anymore. But what we've replaced it with are these quick glances, which is I'm primarily doing one thing, except for every five or 10 minutes, I do quick glance inbox, quick glance on phone, maybe quick glance at the newsfeed. We have this sort of quick cycle we do. Cognitive science research and neuroscience research tells us, however, that those quick glances are devastating from a neurological perspective. Because every time you do one of these quick context shifts to an inbox or screen and come back to your primary work, there's a residue left from that that context shift, which can reduce your cognitive capacity significantly for a long time to follow. So a quick glance every five or 10 minutes is like taking a drug that's going to make you much worse at thinking. And this is the state that most knowledge workers have put themselves in perpetually without even realizing it. So you've just spoken about cognitive residue. And then I've also heard you mention the term, we have a hyperactive hive mind. What What is a hyperactive hive mind? What is it and how is it affecting us? A hyperactive hive mind is the dominant workflow right now in the knowledge work sector. It's, it's an approach to work where you give everyone an email address or hook everyone up to a shared Slack channel and you allow an unstructured conversation to unfold throughout the day. And you, you try to handle things and figure things out on the fly through unstructured messaging all day long. My big point is that the hyperactive hive mind is a arbitrary workflow There's many other ways we could be working in the knowledge work economy, and it happens to be a particularly bad one that we need to move on from as soon as we can. Because of all this, Cal, with what business is setting up in terms of the hive mind, the quick glance, I mean, these are things that we can all see around us, but seemingly we're not, the majority of people aren't attending to it, making a change. Does this come down to fundamentally we don't value our time in the right way? Yeah, we don't have that figured out correctly yet. And I think this is fundamentally because knowledge work in the age of digital networks is just too new. It just takes time to figure out. We see this throughout history. Whenever you have a technological revolution that impacts commerce, it takes a while to figure out the best practices. We saw this in the industrial revolution. It took us a few decades to figure out how to run factories efficiently. I think we're just in the early stage right now of trying to understand what's the right way to take human brains and extract value out of human brains. We're going to get better at this. 
we're just in the starting phases. I'm interested to know, how much do you think we're just in denial sometimes? Like, do you think people hear you talk about the quick glance, but then are sitting in the meeting and go, oh, it was only one glance in 20 minutes. You know, it's not a problem for me. Do do you think that there's some denial there that we do recognize a problem, but perhaps we just don't see it as a problem? Yeah, I think the denial is in the fact that it's very hard to understand what an alternative would look like, right? I mean, this is the hyperactive high mind is the workflow we use right now. So if I unplug you from the hyperactive high mind without changing anything else about your organization, that's going to be bad for you. And that's going to be bad for the organization. The organization is built right now on constant unstructured communication. So I think what makes this a very difficult problem when we're talking about the economy writ large is the type of changes we're going to need to move past the hyperactive hive mind are more than just some tips or some better etiquette. I think what we're eventually going to see is whole scale transformations into how we even organize and run knowledge work business. So it's, it's, it's denial. It's also a little bit of short term pragmatism. This is a hard thing to change by yourself and in the short term. But it's also the whole slacker thing, I think, Cal, I've heard you speak of, is that if you're not one of these guys that's doing the quick glance and you walk at somebody and say, hey, mate, you know, how's it going? How's your day? Ah, oh, busy. If you're not overworked, overloaded, got 20 things on the go, you're not an entrepreneur, you haven't got a side hustle, it's almost like if you don't have all that stuff you're seen as a slacker. That's a bit of a trap, isn't it? It's a trap, but it's an easy one to get out of because once you actually start producing higher value output using your brain, everything good follows from that. You, you gain more rewards, you gain more recognition, you gain more leverage over your career. Almost everything good in your professional life can stem from a foundation of, I think really hard to produce things that are rare and valuable. Kelly, are you a believer in the Pomodoro method of, 20 minutes on, have a break, 20 minutes on, have a break, Are you, or, or, or a, a version of that? I think that can be an excellent training tool. To me, what's important, however, is that once you're consistently hitting your time length, increase it. So maybe you start with 20 minutes, but once you're consistently hitting 20 minutes without distraction, make it 30, then make it 40, then make it 50. You want to try to increase the amount of time you're comfortable concentrating bit by bit. Oh, that's good. On the flip side to that... We seem to be living in an environment where more seems to be better. What you're talking about here is taking the right stuff and expanding that, isn't it? Yeah, more being better is a a fallacy when applied to many different things. For example, we often think more communication is somehow better than less or more information is somehow is better than less. But that's not always true. For example, I'm a computer scientist who helps design algorithms for distributed systems. And often what we're trying to do is minimize the amount of communication required to have the system actually accomplish its goals. So I really do push back on this idea that more is better applies to most areas of business. So I completely buy into this. And I've got a query. Is concentration the same as focus? I use the two phrases interchangeably. Mm. Okay. If, if I'm going to bring this notion to an organization, whether I have three employees or I have a thousand employees, as a leader who believes in this philosophy, can see the importance, wants to make a fundamental cultural change in a business, what's the starting point? There's two things that I've seen reported to me since the book came out as being successful for changing a culture to focus more on depth. One is just vocabulary. You actually speak about deep work within your organization as something different than shallow work. You don't just have one term. Are you working hard? Are you not working hard? Are you here early and leaving late? Or are you lazy? You get rid of this homogenous approach to work and you talk about deep work as a separate activity than shallow work. The second thing that I've had reported to me as very useful for trying to cultivate this in organizations is actually having people establish a target deep to shallow work ratio that they want to hit each week. That is a ratio of what, uh, how many of their hours they work each week are deep work hours versus shallow work hours. This will differ depending on your position, but I think almost everyone should have one of these ratios worked out and it's something that should be managed. Their managers should be saying, what's your ratio? Did you hit it? Are you falling short? What do we do to get you there? Mm. That's good. 
Cal, if you were to do an updated version of the book today, I know the book's not that old, with because when you write a book like that, you've obviously got a lot of comments, you're doing a lot of interviews, there's a lot of discussion around it, which it is because it's a super successful book. If you were today to write an updated version or include something in there, or change something? Is there something comes to mind that you would now put in or include or take out that would help make the book more efficient or effective? You know, an idea I heard a lot after the book came out was this notion of the monk mode morning, which I wish I had heard of before. <laughs> There's a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs are doing this nowadays, which is where they they say very simply to to everyone they work with and their clients. As far as you're concerned, my day starts at 11 or 12, right? So if you want to you call me, you want to email me, you want to set up a meeting with me, that's great. But all of that starts at around 11 or 12. And the morning up until then is deep work. I didn't write about this particular strategy in the book, but it turns out that it's very effective for a lot of people because it's very simple for your organization to learn, oh yeah, he's available after 11. It's very easy to adjust to that. And it gives you this consistent, non-trivial hit of deep work day after day after day. So that's one piece of advice I wish I had, I had pushed a little harder. So it sounds like it's something we should be putting in our diary. Is that right? Yeah, you should be tracking. I mean, I'm a big advocate of tracking, for example, uh, looking back how much deep work you did and looking forward when you're going to do the deep work. I mean, this is something that has to be planned just as, a, just as much as any other sort of important, regular occurring meeting or activity in your life. And I've got to say, Cal, that my experience with getting up earlier in the morning, because there is this, uh, I guess a lot of successful people talk about the time they rise in the day. And I think it's something that was mentioned in the book was that getting up before the dawn and getting ahead of the day where essentially there really should be no telephones and digital distractions at that time of the morning, but that's going to be planned as well. And I find that if it's not in your diary, you don't have the intention to do it, then it's easily replaced by sleep or something else. And this is a number one observation you'll make if you study people who are very good at deep work is that they have very specific philosophies for how they schedule the deep work time in their schedule. I mean, this is incredibly consistent. So if you're just kind of hoping that I hope I get around to doing some more deep work this week, you're out of luck. The people who are good at this, incredibly specific philosophies that they follow very carefully. So it sounds quite contrary, but it, it, people who are have this belief and value in deep work and it's leading to success for them. It sounds like that they are, they have quite structured days. They have structure, structure around it. And it sounds like they'd be a believer in compartmentalizing their day into chunks where different elements of the day bring different sorts of work. Is that sort of what you're observing? That is pretty common. It is pretty common to see deep workers uh, having much more control over their schedule and, and structuring their time a lot more. Deep workers recognize that real creativity and interesting output is going to happen during protected deep work sessions. So they don't believe in that myth out there that if you have structure in your day, that this somehow is going to squelch your flexibility or creativity. They say, I want to structure my day so I can have enough unstructured depth that interesting creative things can actually get done. Do we find it easier, Cal? to do deep work on hobbies or interests away from work than we do on our actual work day? Is there anything that you have observed, discovered in research, come across anecdotally where we find it, we had the skills and we find it easier to do it away from work than we do at work? For a lot of people, play or hobbies is the place where they have the most exposure to deep work. So for example, if you play an instrument, learning an instrument, uh, learning a new song on an instrument is a sort of classic example of deep work. If you're a game player, you're a card player, uh, that is a great example of deep work where you're giving something unbroken concentration. So I think that's definitely true that this is where a lot of people have encountered deep work before. Uh, the difference, of course, is that when you try to apply deep work to your professional life, it's something that you need to do day after day, whether you're in the mood for it or not, which is, which is really different than how people approach deep work 
in their personal life, which is when all of the stars align and they're really in the mood and have the opportunity to pick up the guitar, then they're going to do it. So often the big hurdle to move this experience from your personal life to professional life is learning how to do depth like a professional, learning how to do it consistently and at a high level, regardless of whether or not you happen to be in the mood for it. I've heard you use a term called productive meditation. What What is that and how do you apply that to your day? Productive meditation is a training technique to help increase your facility with thinking really hard. It's a pretty simple technique. What you do is you take a professional problem You go for a walk. While you're walking, you try to make progress on the problem just in your head. And as in mindfulness meditation, when you notice your attention wanders away from the problem, you just say you notice that and you bring it back to the problem. You wander away, you notice it, you bring it back to the problem. What I found is that for a lot of people, when they first try productive meditation, it's incredibly difficult. They have a very hard time keeping their concentration on the problem. You do this for about a month on a regular basis, and you're going to find that you're able to hold a hard thought in your head for a long period of time. It's like doing pull-ups for your brain. It's an incredibly effective training mechanism. Mate, you'll have to remind me to do that next time we run out of Tim Tams in the studio. Yeah, it would be a little walked out of the shop for you, wouldn't it? You'd be meditating, <laughs> meditating on Tim Tams. Um, I'm, and I'm guessing, Cal, you don't take your phone with you because that's where the quick glance and these sorts of things would completely diminish the productive meditation and, in fact, the trip you're taking down the deep work laneway because that would be the biggest temptation, people to go for a walk with one problem in mind but along the way without even knowing it. Because I watch people in the city and they'll have their phones in their bag or their pocket, they walk up to a set of lights, push the button for the pedestrian crossing, and you can count backwards from 20 and I promise you you will not get to zero before they pull their phone out for a quick glance that would sort of diminish the whole value of what you're talking about, wouldn't it? Yeah, you do it without a phone, you do it without distraction, and you get this double-barreled advantage. One, you're you're pushing your ability to concentrate, you're training that. And two, you're getting that boredom practice where your mind gets more and more comfortable with, I don't always get novel shining stimuli. I mean, your mind, you don't have to be bored all the time, but your mind has to be comfortable with this idea that sometimes you get to see interesting things And sometimes you don't. That used to just be life, but the smartphone made it possible for you to avoid that condition of boredom altogether. So productive meditation, I'm telling you, if you do one thing to get better at deep work, do a walk without a phone, thinking about one thing as often as you can. It's it's like a miracle drug for cognitive performance. Speaking of miracle drugs, uh, social media, you don't have a social media account. You've done a TEDx speech on not having a social media account. Uh, you seem to be okay with it. You seem to be you're living, living. You're, you're, you've survived. What have you noticed about that, Cal? What's been the most revealing thing? Are you still doing that? And what's been the most revealing? What's been the most revealing part of that experiment for you? Well, it is true. I, I don't have any social media accounts. There are some fake Twitter accounts in my name that someone pointed me towards recently, but I can tell you those aren't, they might have my picture, but those aren't me. Uh, and, and you're right, I'm fine. Uh, this is the secret that Silicon Valley doesn't want you to know. Nothing bad happens if you don't use social media. I mean, I'm a millennial, I'm a book author, I'm a computer scientist, I'm all the demographics that supposedly has to have social media if I'm going to thrive and stay connected in this world. And I don't miss it at all. I don't know what I'm missing. I'm completely, I have friends. I'm completely informed on what's going on in the world. My anxiety levels are probably lower. And I think the lesson I've learned from this is that the social media companies want you to think that they are fundamental technologies, something like electricity or the internet, something that would be eccentric or weird not to use, something that everyone needs to be using. But I think the reality is they're mainly entertainment products. They trade you entertainment in exchange for your eyes and attention, which they can make some money on. There's nothing wrong with that. But the idea that this is somehow fundamental or that it's weird if you don't use it, that's something I think we really need to change in how people think about these technologies. There's something behind it though, Cal. I heard you mention that on the term anxiety, that there were some research documents produced about a university or a college campus, and they did some experiments with social media and 
taking social media away and the anxiety levels, it did have a profound effect on anxiety levels. Is that right? Social media is now increasingly widely uh, assumed to be behind the unprecedented massive rise in mental health issues and in particular anxiety-related disorders among the first generation of children to grow up with smartphones. So the, the, the generation that, that was very young in 2012 when iPads and iPhones and smartphones first became prevalent, this generation has problems. At first, I just heard rumblings about this. I, I talked to the head of mental health at a big university and she told me, you know what, we used to get the normal stuff here, the normal spread, uh, eating disorders, homesickness. Smartphones came along. It's all anxiety-related disorders. We have five times more people reporting in with mental health issues than ever before. I was hearing these rumblings, but now there's a big new book that was just released a few weeks ago. The title is iGen. I-G-E-N. Uh, it's one of the, the leading demographers who studies mental health issues among different generations. And she is uh, uh, sounding the alarm at full volume that as a demographer, she has never seen anything like the trends on mental health issues that she's noticing for this first generation to be raised with these smartphones and social media. So I think we're shifting now from a place where we kind of shrug our shoulders and say, hey, it's kids these days, to where we get to a place where we're squaring our shoulders and saying, we got to help kids these days. And if we stay with that for a second, Cal, and I, I couldn't agree with you more, how do, we, how do we help our children with focus and concentration? If we know that it's so powerful and the superstars in any field in the future will be the ones that can do, can really think very hard and think deeply on something. How do we help our children with that? Well, talking about the ability to concentrate as a tier one skill, just like you would talk about being able to write well or program a computer, that's the first step. So they're just hearing this message, that they're getting the information that concentration is a tier one skill that you can be good at or bad at, and if you're good at, it has a huge advantage. Two, you actually have to set up the environment where they get plenty of practice doing this. And I reject this premise that if a, a teenager does not have 24-hour access to a smartphone, that somehow their entire life is going to fall apart. This is like uh, if we were in ancient Sparta, where, where athletic and strength ability was the key to our society, and yet we allowed our kids to bring junk food with them everywhere, right? It wouldn't work there. We're now in a knowledge economy where focus is important. We can't let young people be glued to these screens all the time. And I think we should and will see more tough love along these lines, where it's the smartphone or the phone is something we give to you to have at some points during the day and the rest of the time you don't have it. Just before we wrap up, Cal, this has been absolutely wonderful spending time with you. I've just, something that occurred to me, and I think I heard it mentioned in one of your speeches, and I just want to get you to elaborate on it. I found that when people want to speak you make you have you now have to make an appointment even for a telephone call because it's just so hard you waste so much time with phone tag so you set the time and i reckon 75% of the time the person who is going to call you or you are going to call is not there at the designated time and then 10 minutes later it's like oh i'm sorry or you are sitting at a table and somebody will take a call have a quick glance and they say i'm sorry and it's almost like the I'm sorry thing now is a mask back to what Robbo was saying to make them make themselves feel better about being rude or not having the discipline. Is that something in your study science anecdotally you're collecting that is becoming a, something we should really be aware of is that we mask our inattention with I'm sorry? I think there is a lot of masking of deeper issues here, whether it's with a, a, an I'm sorry or a, you know how it is or the sort of proverbial shoulder shrug. I think there are major issues with how we structure our time, how we make use of our brains, how we run our organizations. And right now we have this thin veneer of just, hey, well, you know how it is these days, phones these days, or things are hectic these days, or yeah, sorry, I, I, I didn't answer the call when we said we were going to do it, or sorry that I had my phone out while we were talking. That is a, a uh, bulwark, I guess, against these issues that's not going to hold much longer. I mean, I, I think we need to move past the sort of shoulder shrugging, apologizing 
phase and take more control over our lives and our minds and our companies and our organizations and, and, and stop being pushed around by these products and instead say, what do I actually want to do? How do I want to use my brain? What do I want this company to do? And let's figure out how to do it. Let's make our own decisions about the life of the mind that we're going to live. Cal, just a couple of very quick things before I, um, before I wrap up uh, and before we shut down. What is your shutdown ritual? So what I do for my shutdown ritual at the end of a workday is uh, I'll look over my plan for the day to see if there's any uh, any loose ends or see if I need to update that plan. Often I'll do a, a check of relevant inboxes to make sure there's not an emergency I missed. And then I'll check in on my plan for the next day so I know, okay, here's what's happening tomorrow. Then secure that I know where I am. I've done what I needed to do. I know what's happening tomorrow. I'll actually say some sort of phrase like shut down or shut down complete. And once the ritual is over, I'm shut down. It, it seems to be with this last couple of minutes we've talked about with the I'm sorry or that's how it is or shrugging the shoulders and then not having the ability to shut down. As a parent looking in the mirror, these are very important elements if we are trying to raise children and or have staff members, for that matter, in a workplace who are building a culture around being able to truly think about something and focus and concentrate, it just seems to me the other part of it is that thinking about the shutdown rituals and physically saying, okay, shut down, and now I'm in the world of my family or my children or my mates or whatever. And the same thing at work when you are basically now I'm free of that, now I'm all yours, let's have a proper, fully concentrated meeting, eye to eye, no distractions. It's almost like a mirror image we're sending out, Cal, isn't it? Do you find that the great leaders are disciplined on this because they know their representation to either their family, their children, or others? I have definitely heard that. For example, in the business context, the, the sort of the great CEOs or the great leaders, if you have a meeting with them, they're going to sit down and give you 100% concentration because that's what they're doing right now, and they want to do that at the highest level. And to me, that's an important lesson for all aspects of life. I mean, a, a deep life in some sense is one where whatever it is you're doing, you do that with full concentration and ability. And regardless of what those activities are, be it writing a masterful new chapter of a book or giving a bath to your kid, it's all much better if you're doing each thing fully. I mean, to, to live in each, do each thing as well as you can handle each thing in its time is a much better way to go about. It's a good term. Do each thing fully. I like that. Um, last thing, Cal, before we get the details of where to find out more about you, looking at you on uh, YouTube, on different clips, you are a fit looking, healthy guy in good shape. Which is, in this day and age, when you look at a lot of authors or speakers, I mean, not, not everybody's, you know, that way. Where does that fit into your ecosystem for Cal Newport with the importance of it to do with the thinking element? And number two, for good health. I mean, what are you, what's your ritual routines around that? How important is it? Is it something you do work at? Like, what's your view on that? The physical to me is as important as the mental. I mean, in the sense that as human beings, there's, there's certain things we're wired for and certain things we're not. And we're much happier when we try to go with the grain to, to do what we're wired for. And one of the things we're wired for is we're wired to move. We're wired, wired to lift heavy things. We're wired to be on foot. So I start every day, for example, before my kids get up, I walk down to the, the local park, which is in a big field with a big open vista. And I do pull-ups on the pull-up bar at the playground there to sort of open the day. I'll spend, if a lot of days, I'll spend most of the day walking. I mean, today was a day I, I, I did a lot of writing. I I uh, did some book research and tackled a lot of tasks to interviews, but I also probably walked six or seven miles today. I, I, I want to be outside. I want to be moving. I think on foot. We're just wired for that. We need to be moving. We need to be lifting heavy things. And we also seem to be wired for, for deep thinking. I mean, concentration, we've come out of that feeling really good. If you give me the same amount of time with completely fragmented attention, we come out of that really frazzled. So to me, it's always about going back towards 
what are we meant to do as human beings? Go with the grain of our human nature. You're going to be much more successful than if you try to go against it. Mate, that was a perfect uh, wrap up, a perfect shutdown for our segment with you. And I just, I think what I love, Cal, is the guys that walk the talk. And we we get a lot of them on this program because I'm pretty careful with who we select to have on as guests because we want to add value we want to help people get their mojo working in and out of work. And you're just a guy that walks the talk. And I really, uh, I really admire your writing and, and how you approach your stuff. Uh, which leads me to, uh, Cal, how do people find out more about you, your books, your workings, your writings? Where do you send them? Well, I have a website, calnewport.com, and you can find out about my books there. Also, I've been blogging there for over a decade now, so you can really dive back to that archive and, and, and get a good sense of my thoughts on all these types of topics and how they've evolved over time. Well, as Rob said at the start of the show, we mentioned your book and your work a lot, mate. It's been a real privilege. Thank you so much for your time and uh, for, for getting us into your diet. It's been uh, it's been a real honour, and um, thank you for sharing your stuff on Rocktober, mate. Thanks, well, thank Cal. you both. I enjoyed it on the Mojo Radio Show. It's Rocktober. This is Ivor Davies from My Town. This is Tate Fletcher from Pirate Life Radio. You're listening to the Mojo Radio Show. Get it right for Rocktober. So Rocktober was always famous. It was the month of October where stations turned themselves inside out and they had just a great sound for Rocktober. It was great music, great artists. On our show, it's great guests. And, of course, to do Rocktober properly, you need giveaways. We've been at the prize cupboard, Robbo. We have been to the prize cupboard and it's hot, hot, hot in there. Now, we have gotten together with the guys at Chili Bomb and Matt at Bear Brewing to make a fully fermented natural red hot chili sauce. And it's called Rocktober Rocket Fuel. Folks, it's yours for free. Now, many people think this is a bit of a piss take, but this is actually real. Yeah, we'll send you once. a bottle of Rocket Fuel. <laughs> I had some last night uh, on my grass fed beef, and it is. It's really good. I've got to say it has got some Carolina Reaper and Ghost Chili in it, which makes they're two of the hottest chilies in the world. It's not insanely hot, but it's smoky Louisiana, tasty hot. Mm. And, Robbo, we are sending our first two bottles of Livy the studio. Yeehaw! Gary S. Lucas said, fantastic guests, high-quality audio. Eh, questionable. Uh <laughs> The conversations focus on practical points, good, tick the box, that we can take away. They balance the heavier aspects of the interview with a healthy dose of fun, and the music tops it off really well. Thanks, guys. Oh, someone stars. likes our music. Gaza. <laughs> Lucas. Gaza. Nice one, Gaza. Kanye Gaza. And uh, I'm also going to pop a little bottle out to uh, Kari. Is that right? K-A-R-I-E. Would you say that, Kari? Yeah, that's how I'd say it. Kari, yep. Carrie, maybe. Loving the podcast. Fantastic to get exposure to some amazing people who open our eyes in a new and different way to enhance what we might already be trying practically. I've also recommended it to many people. Keep up the great work, guys. A bottle on the way. So we will oh, put two some, bottles if she's recommending us. Yeah, five <laughs> stars. Uh, so the bottles are. So we're started. The Rocktober giveaway prize yeah. cupboard is uh, unlocked. It's off. It's on the road. I just want to pick you up on something you said at the head of this segment, though. You said two bottles leaving the studio. I'm still waiting for one bottle to enter the studio. (laughs) (laughs) I should also mention to Geza and Kari, um, email us via the website at info at themojoradioshow.com and let us know we can contact you to get an address so our little Oompa Loompas in the prize studio here can send it off the good, the the rocket field to you. So get in Mm. touch, guys. We know where to send it. I wonder if we have to declare that as hazardous goods. <laughs> wow. Rocktober remembers. You know, there's something that we were doing last Rocktober that we haven't done this Rocktober. We haven't done a Rocktober remembers. Well, uh, and I, uh, it's funny you should mention. It's funny you should mention that, Darren. Why would that be, Gary? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds so wrong, doesn't it? I, it does. Um, it, whenever you do, whenever I'm out doing a gig and I'm talking about mojo, I always discuss people. I always get people's opinions about who do you think got mojo. And if you're with a business crowd, guaranteed in the top three to five people will be Steve Jobs. Oh, have to be. Yep. And 
unquestionably, whether you like him or not, whether you like Apple or not, any person who believes in innovation, creativity, and disruption will say that Jobs was the man in his generation. So this is a gone but not forgotten for Steve Jobs. And it's a piece that I found on 60 Minutes, 60 Minutes Overtime, where he talked about this band. It's been a hard day's night And I've been working like a dog It's been a hard day's night I should be sleeping like a log But when I get home to you I find the things that you do Will make me feel alright My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys who, who kept each other's kind of negative tendencies in check. Uh, they balanced each other, and, and, and the sum was greater than, uh, the, the total was greater than the sum of the parts. And that's how I see business. You know, great, great things in business are never done by one person. They're done by a, they're done by a team of people. And, and we've got that here at Pixar. Um, and we've got that at Apple as well. And so that's, that's what lets me do this. Well, you know, when the Beatles, when they were together, uh, they did truly brilliant, innovative work. And when they split up, they did good work, but it was, it, 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 it was never the same. And I, I see business that way too. It's really always a team. So we're going to blend two segments here. I think it is a gone but not forgotten definitely for the Beatles and Steve Jobs. The other thing, though, is kind of a lesson of rock because hearing that, what occurs to me is he's talking about four guys and two lessons. The first lesson is four guys who dropped their egos because they were only as good as each other. And when they went solo, they were never as good as being together. So that is just a wonderful story about great teamwork. But to do that, all four members have got to drop their ego. And I've been in boardrooms where you have leaders who talk about teamwork, but then all they talk about is I, 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 Mm -hmm. I. Mm-hmm. And maybe the second lesson, according to Jobs, uh, is that they, well, perceptually, they probably weren't as successful as individual artists as they were as coming together. So mm. if a team, come, if a band, a team, a company come together and hunt as a pack and have each other's back and work mm. together and drop the egos, Hmm. then chances are, and I guess it's the old Rudyard Kipling saying that um, the strength of the pack is the wolf and the strength of the wolf is the pack, that each individual Hmm. artist perceptually was strong, but when they hunted together, then they were really something. So um, Hmm. it's a nice piece. It's probably a good thing to drop a little little bit of Beatles into October. It probably is. I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball in there and get your thoughts on this. Do you reckon another lesson from the Beatles in terms of what, in terms of working together would be to collaborate with an, with an outside entity if you want to throw George Martin in the mix? Yeah, to collaborate, you really have to drop the ego. You have to respect each other's abilities. You've got to be open for people to come in and contribute mm. and not believe that you have all the answers, but you are open to possibilities. And it seems at the Beatles that the, the, one of the greatest attributes was the ground they broke with their music, with how they did things. But they obviously believed they didn't have all the answers and were open to possibilities. So I think collaboration is a big part of it. But if you don't drop the ego, then <laughs> yeah. it ain't going to happen because you're not listening. You're not going to let him in the door. You believe you got all the answers and no one else can give you a perspective on it, in which case, no, collaborations ain't going to work. It'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Imagine the Beatles without George Martin. I wonder what that would sound like. Mm. (laughs) Anyway, we'll never know. Let me take you down, cause I'm going to Strawberry Field. Nothing is real. And nothing to get hung about. Strawberry Fields forever. I'm Ringo and I play the drums. Uh, well, I'm Paul and I play the uh, uh, bass. I'm George and I play a guitar. I'm John and I too play a guitar. Sometimes I play the fool. Now I'm going to show you how to make radio. For this, you'll need high fidelity stereophonic sound. And also a bit of music. And then, of course, mojo, baby. Yeah! Here's one I made earlier. 
You know I'm not a big country music fan, but when you walked in earlier, you were playing something on your iPhone that I hadn't heard before and I actually kind of dug it. What was that? It's a discovery. Oh, look out. <laughs> We've been digging deep, have we? Well, the, the, the good thing about this show, the good thing about podcasts as an industry is that you're not edited and you can play whatever the hell you want, which is part of the gig for the show. We've always believed from day one that we will do what we think we enjoy doing and we love and we think others will share in. And this is a discovery from a guy called Drew McAllister. So people who are in the country industry here in Australia and even overseas, because I did some work with Big and Rich uh, in America, but Drew is an award-winning golden guitar country singer here in Australia. This is his brand new single. And the reason I like this track, and we're going to use it as our play out for October week two, is that the song Coming Your Way, my belief is, folks, that if you do the stuff that our special guests are sharing on this show, good times, good things, better things will come your way. Because I think people are just out looking for the next thing. What's the next silver bullet? And they're looking for the next podcast, the next blog, the next book, the next speaker. Yet they haven't done anything with what they got from the last one. And take one thing from Cal and do it. Put it into your day. As they accumulate the compounding effect, I promise you good stuff will come your way. I'm also going to put a copy of Drew's clip uh, it's on YouTube. It's called Drew McAllister coming your way. Look at the clip because the notion of the clip is people standing on a big diving board writing on a piece of paper what their limiting belief or that voice that's holding them back, screwing it up, throwing it, and then taking the leap. And to me, man, it just sums up exactly what the show is all about. Great information. Let go of those beliefs, but do something. Take the leap. And Drew McAllister is a great lyricist. It's a terrific song. I think it's going to become a bit, of, a bit of an anthem for him. And, folks, the last thing I'd say about this song is listen to the lyrics because I guarantee every single one of us is written about in this lyric. You will hear yourself in these lyrics. And I agree with Drew. I think take something, do something with it. Put it into your day, make it a regular part of what you do, and good times, good stuff, and mojo is coming your way. This one's for the little people and for the broken hearted. Then down on your luck and you about had enough in waters that you've never charted. This one's for the busted and broken, the ones that can't win for losing. The flying too high just to fall from the sky Should give up but you're still refusing Here's to you I raise my glass Here's to no future in the past Better times and better days Will they surely come in your way For the daring and bold For fighting the fight on your own For standing defiant And always trying Not selling the devil your soul This one's for the fearless and brave The underdog having your day For overcoming and standing for something No matter what comes, come what may That you've never charted Here's to you I'll raise my glass Here's to no future in the past Better times and better days 
Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.